Hello, and thank you for joining us today for the 137th episode of the Learning with Lowell Show. Today we are joined with Dr. Varun, who is in the trenches in the longevity, aging, and epigenetic spaces. He's the head of bioinformatics at True Diagnostics, where for the last two years he's been working to apply his passion in longevity and science to develop bioaging clocks. In this episode, we learn about DNA methylation. We actually get quite uh, nerdy on that in the first 30 minutes. Biomarkers, how bioaging clocks are developed, why they are so important, and the results of developing really powerfully accurate clocks. We see a lot, uh, we talk about some of the results he's seen. We also discuss the future of longevity space, axolotl genomic nerdiness, research recommendations, and much more. Remember to subscribe to your friends to let me know if you like this episode or what you thought about it. Also, we have a new YouTube and Clips channel for the video components of these interviews. Check out the show notes to see that. And finally, let's stay curious, learn about Dr. Varun, longevity, and the aging space. I thought it'd be really great just to define what is methylization, just for people who don't know, and then we can start just getting deeper down in the rabbit hole. And what what is like um, your fascination with it? Like, What is the thing that you really find exciting about methylization? Yeah, yeah. So uh, DNA, so specifically when we look, think about um, DNA methylation, uh, oh, it's, no, not, not a problem. It's, uh, it, t- it took me uh, a minute to figure that out too. Um, DNA methylation is essentially the addition of a methyl group, um, that a specific amino acid to the DNA itself. And what that allows is essentially a ability to read the DNA in a diff- in, in a different way. So when we start to think about, you know, uh, how DNA gets uh, cre- uh, trans- uh, trans- transcribed into uh, RNA and then translated to proteins, um, their transcription allows that DNA to go into to RNA. And some of that RNA becomes messenger RNA and then allows that to become proteins, which actually do a lot of the uh, biological process or cultivate a lot of that biological processes. And so DNA methylation exists as a way to essentially without changing the DNA itself, it reads the DNA, it, it affects the transcription of the DNA so that it allows for different phenotypes or different biological processes to be generated. And so even though you're not changing the DNA itself, you're inher- you're essentially allowing it to be read differently, which then can cause changes that permeate throughout the, uh, the biology of whatever organism that you're studying. Hmm. Where, how did we discover it? Was it just there waiting to happen, kind of like CRISPR and the bacteria, or is it like how do we figure this out? It was, um, see, I forget the name of the individual, <laughs> but um, it was a, a researcher out in, um, it, I think Adrian Bird was one of the first, uh, first researchers that really figured it out in vertebrates and also looked at CPG methylation specifically. And essentially, it came from uh, a lot of the x-ray crystallography that was done before um, and started to see that a lot of these amino acids were being added onto the DNA itself. Okay. And so it's not it's not like a new thing. It sounds like, you know, crystallography, I think that's how we first uh, understood what the DNA helix looked like. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like Um, 70 years old. But but the... but the thing about it is that uh, not until really the height of sequencing, and this is the case with DNA, that we really are starting to see, um, under, try, really understand more of it um, in, in terms of understanding, you know, where, which locations uh, that it's being um, methylated at. Um, it's popularly noted that um, DNA methylation specifically occurs at cytosines. 
And so um, really looking at uh, a, DNA, a cytosine methylation is, is kind of where we think it is right now. But moving forward as, you know, as sequencing uh, becomes a little bit more uh, popularized, we'll, we might start to see it occur elsewhere. Are there, is it possible for there to be like other hidden things going on, like methyl methylation that we just don't know about? I, I imagine so. Um, so okay. another facet of uh, DNA, so DNA methylation is one type of epigenetic mark. And so this is epigenetics mm. essentially means the, um, the, that alteration of the genetics without actually changing the, uh, the genome itself. And so you actually have something called histone uh, uh, modifications, which those methylation marks and other type of amino acids are being added to the histone. So the proteins that really coil the DNA and condense it so that it fits into the cell. And so the reason why I bring that up is because even though we know that CPG methylate or cytosine methylation is usually a methyl group at being added, know that in histones at those um, on those proteins, not only methyl groups are being added, but acetyl groups and other types of um, amino acids are being added there. So who knows, maybe something like that also occurs uh, in the DNA, uh, in the DNA itself. And probably somebody's already figured this out. Um, so I, you know, staying on top of the scientific literature uh, is a must, especially with recent uh, advances in technology. Mm -hmm. uh, histones. I, I'm going to definitely have to look into that deeper because I've been uh, like, there's a, like a side interest of mine trying to understand like how prion diseases exist or like how they, how they work so that we can like I'm kind of curious, like how people are, uh, how we could like combat them in an effective way. Um, so that, like, that's another thing that I can start looking into, but you, you, you mentioned something that's actually uh, really important, which is like, how do you stay up to date on things? And this can, can tie into like this axolotl story that I definitely, I know we wanted to get into, but sure. I was reading a study that said that after 18 months outside of university, like your knowledge base is basically, it's, 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 uh, it's not the cutting edge anymore. And so I, I am curious, how do you stay on the cutting edge like what do you what do you have to do even on like a weekly basis to stay there um honestly i'm gonna let you in on a little secret we try to stay on top of it but it's very difficult <laughs> but what uh, what i try to do as much as i can is um so especially in this day of age um having google scholar is mm. especially sending those alerts it has been it's been ridiculously important for staying on top of everything because um, and on top of that too I have certain searches just for key terms uh, for example when I was a grad student I did I had a um, Google Scholar alert for anything that had to do with axolotl regeneration and uh, axolotl genomics um, uh, as another uh, keyword but nowadays, since I have been focusing more on epigenetic aging and epigenetic tests and things like that, um, I, my my um, uh, keywords have really changed <laughs> in the recent years. And as much as I try to stay on top of the Axol literature, you know, it really goes within the focus. So Google mm -hmm. Scholar has been very helpful. And I think with the internet age, uh, I think Google has really helped out in, you know, at least amassing that information. Um, number two is, uh, ironically, uh, Twitter. <laughs> um, and I say ironically because, you know, uh, the, there's all this, you know, debate about whether you could believe stuff on Twitter and not saying that you have to. But if you um, find that a lot of the researchers that you, you know, read, um, some of them are very active on uh, Twitter. And, and 
not only those uh, researchers, but other researchers in the field. And so they'll, you know, pu- uh, they'll tweet out uh, publications that really made an impact for them. And naturally, that kind of uh, provides a resource for me to look back on and uh, go from there. Um, mm-hmm. But it was uh, difficult, uh, even now, to because you can you could read all the modern literature and all the new stuff, but it is very imperative to go back to where it first came from. So, uh, for example, D- the DNA methylation question is actually. Uh, I don't even know if I answered it 100%, but you know, you you have to kind of understand the history before going into uh, to the modern uh, times. But you know, Adrian Bird was one of them that really um, a lot of his uh, original work, I think, with CPG uh, island uh, identifying CPG islands and CPG methylation really uh, stood out just because of how it uh, directly related over to understanding vertebrate uh, uh, methylation uh, DNA methylation or C- uh, cytosine methylation. Mm-hmm. And uh, just as like a, a slight uh, transition, so we could have like this little X Lotto story, and then we can, because that's more of like a regenerative uh, yeah. thing. And then we're gonna like the majority of this episode, I think, is gonna be on uh, longevity. Um, what what is the the fascination with X Like, other than uh, I imagine to get a PhD, but I mean, I imagine I imagine there's a, like there's some passion underneath that as well. Yeah, I I mean, uh, how does uh, I, so so when I joined. Um, my my fascination with the axolotl was regeneration. Um, I watched uh, the amazing Spider-Man. I think the one with the uh, Andrew Garfield, <laughs> the reboot. Um, and uh, even though that the basis of that movie was a lizard, the axolotl had this abil- innate ability to regenerate not only limbs but spinal cord, half the brain, um, vir- virtually all these uh, muscles in- inside of it. And so naturally the question then becomes, how does this happen? Um, and so that was really the first part is maybe unlocking some of those uh, or just identifying some of those uh, programs so then potentially we could translate that over to humans. So that was step one. But then step two, um, I think from a bioinformatics perspective and a computational biology perspective, as a trainee, I the, I really wanted to understand how their genome was built or what makes their genome unique. Because again, uh, as, I, as I mentioned that 32 gigabases, that's a lot of DNA. And how do you fit that into a cell of a seeming of, of a smaller uh, creature, right? I mean, the, if you compare the size of an axolotl to a human and we have 10 times less the size of their DNA, how does that get packaged into such a strong and into, into such a, a small uh, body. <laughs> um, and so that was another fascination as well. And so um, providing, you know, being able to uh, essentially um, study that, but then also provide some resources for the community to maybe take that uh, research a little bit further. That's what excited me um, about that field. And uh, it really made me um, I think it made me a lot more appreciative of the human um, <laughs> model because a lot of the bioinformatics resources, the genome, uh, like a lot of that wasn't built when I first started. And so, you know, you were kind of navigating through the wild west and um, I'd like to think, you know, maybe finding the same problems that, uh, that people originally had with, you know, even developing the human genome or human methylome um, during that time. I think the, the weirdest thing about the axolotl 
Like, isn't the fact that they regenerate? Th- I mean, that is weird. Um, yeah. Like they regenerate all these things. But when it when it's regenerated, it works. You know, it's not just like a hump. Like it's not like a lump of flesh yeah. or, you know, something like it. Com- it's like some of the like the cell egg stuff going on or even when they're trying to make uh, like a uh, heart tissue or something. They have to do some work before it can do what it, it was, you know, what it, the original cells were. But it, it'll grow an entire hand and it'll, it'll just start walking with it. It's like that's weird. That's yeah. like it just comes out. I mean, unless uh, I'm misremembering, but it's just like it just it regrows the arm and the arm just starts working. Like they don't have to do like physical training or anything. <laughs> but there's just that's such a weird thing, given like you know all the stuff that we have to do just to maintain. Uh, you know, if we break a leg, all the you know the work we have to do just to get that to kind of be realigned. And there's no, yeah. you know, it's no, an, it, entirely different. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely true. And uh, w- one thing that really makes it a, a model system for regeneration is the fact that if you look at their limbs, I mean, they have four uh, four fingers, so it does look like this, but. The composition of those uh, of of that limb is very similar. Similar. They have the humerus. They have the um, uh, sorry, the 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 four limb bone. Um, they they got the digits. They have um, uh, they have uh, what is it? All the vas- the blood vascular system is very similar and akin to that of the human uh, the the human arm. And so it provides at least like some sort of translational um uh, um. So, some sort of translation between between the two models and actually to your point like uh when we start there the other model that is typically uh studied in regeneration is the lizard tail but the problem with the lizard tail is that it comes back different than when you than the original um uh tail that was cut off it's actually a lot more cartil- cartilaginous uh, than actually with the spinal cord and everything and and you can actually see with a lot of the um there was a there was a paper that came out um a while back where they showed that uh, the the cell makeup is completely different than when it came before or that when it was before which is not the case uh with the axol limb it's exact uh, it's almost exact that's weird and then um I, like you were mentioning with the bigger um genome like is it all useful in a sense like is it like is it all <laughs> adding up to a, a the conclusion of like a working organism or is there do you think there's stuff in there that's like just kind of like carried over like like luggage from the past uh, i i would actually um I'm, so i will preface this by saying we're since the genome came out i think back in 2019 and then the chromosomal assembly was 2021 we're still trying to unpack that but a, um, a lot of it is repetitive uh uh quote-unquote junk dna but What's interesting is if you look at some of these regenerative uh, organisms, such as uh, Planaria, the the flatworm, they also are, I think, greater than 50% um, uh, repetitive genome. And so this is where we wonder, yeah, like it might be quote unquote junk or repetitive DNA, but what if... I mean, time will tell, maybe maybe it does serve a purpose in the biological function. So um, I don't know. It's and I think that's what's exciting is that now with a lot of the sequencing and the genomic uh, world <laughs> coming to play, um, that's where uh, I think that's where really this next gen sequencing and all that has been helping uh, us understand these biological processes a little bit more. Does the genome is the genome stagnant your entire life, or does it is it like does it decrease by any measure? It's like when you're born, you have a, a genome, and then when you die eighty years later, whatever, is it the same? more or less or does it decrease at all oh man that's a great question um not sure 
<laughs> I guess that's something that's something to uh, to read about. Yeah, I was I was I, well, I was thinking I was like, what if like the extra like junk DNA is like extra copier ink, so so you can make more, you know, without it degrading like the telomeres and all this other stuff. So you have like more of a backlog to uh, use right. from if there's some like degradation or like so you have more fidelity. Yeah, I think in that respect it does uh, decrease. I mean, yeah, like as as you kind of already kind of hit. Um, those uh, poly A tails at the end of, uh, well, I mean, I guess that's more RNA. So RNA does degrade in that sense. Um, in the case of the duplication, actually, a lot of it was a genomic duplication that occurred for, for axolotls. Um, uh, that occurred, I think, uh, uh, a long time back in, in the entire scope of their, uh, in, in terms of their family um, separating from, uh, from the frog. Um, and so that's kind of, uh, th that could be a reason why their, uh, do, uh, their, uh, g genome is just completely is, is so large is through that mm -hmm. duplication. Yeah. But, but to answer your question, yeah, very, very good question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it, it leads me to like a, a general thought, which then leads us to like a much smoother transition. But, um, the, if, if the, like. If you could have a person never have any genetic degradation, like just like we're like perfect, we're being like perfect copies our entire life. Do you think there would be like a cap? Would you think there'd still be like a cap in terms of how long we could live? Like assuming, like assuming like no one like runs us over. Like would there? So like is is like true longevity and increasing the human lifespan like endless, or is there like do you think there's like a like an, an inherent physical cap even if it is like a perfect specimen that like does not degrade? That's a fantastic question. I think that, yeah, so a lot of the aging diseases does do come with uh, some of those, uh, I guess, uh, through degradation of, of key um, um, DNA. If you didn't have that, ultimately, the, I think the issue there would then become mutations. And so, for example, the the longer that you are in this world, you're more prone to a lot of mutations that occur. Uh, maybe you know, and and some of those mutations um, can cause the you know the 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 removal of a stop codon or the introduction of a start codon, which then ultimately could create a more cancerous environment. So, cancer is one of those examples that I imagine that e e even if we weren't able to even if we had the ability to, to not degrade the, uh, the genome uh, or uh, lose any of that key information, you have a higher level of just being able to um, mutate uh, regions that could be very negatively, uh, uh, that, that could reduce our longevity, um, abil uh, longevity ability, I guess. Um, and so th I think that, I think that, yeah, re um, reducing the size of the genome or, uh, removing that degradation it is not the only thing we'll have to figure out how to you know maintain the original uh form and the function of that original uh genome as well mm -hmm. are there concerns that you have as we develop these technologies in terms of limitations that you worry about like so like we have expanded our lifespan but have we expanded our health span would be one example of that are there other things that you worry about as you're like in there um well you're in the field so Right. No. Yeah. That's, You're like, in the trenches. <laughs> Good question. I mean, what I, I think what I worry about the most is uh, how do you 
I think it's more of the population aspect, right? Like, yeah, you can increase the longevity of individuals, um, but with overpopulation, that could also cause some other, um, I guess, um, issues with, you know, uh, like civilization, literally like, you know, how do you work with the, the average individual living much longer and what does that do to the environment? So that's one thing in a weird way that I think about. Uh, second is if you increase your longevity, yeah, you want to make sure that, as you mentioned, the health of that individual is consistently uh, high, um, is consistently good as well. Uh, throughout that longevity. I would much rather have someone who maybe lived to the age of 80, but then never really had any ailments versus an individual that lived to 120, but then started having ailments at the age of 50. Because that quality of life really, uh, it, I mean, I wouldn't want to wish that on my uh, on my uh, 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 enemy, <laughs> really. Um, so I think that's something that I kind of think about is you know, as we improve these kind of epigenetic testings or even uh, just uh, uh, medicine in general, it's about, I don't think it's the question of keeping people uh, alive longer. It's how do you keep them healthy um, and allow them to have a high quality of life um, and try to allow them to live a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah. It's like a, like, when they when they have life, are they living? Yeah. So a guy, I know a lot of elder people where it's like they give off they give off the vibe, if not say they wish they could die. You know, it's like they don't. It's like I, I don't see my friends. I can't do any things that I enjoy anymore. Yeah. It's like what am I doing? It's like I I guess I'm here for my family, but at a certain point, it's like I can't do anything with them. Like I'm not in the role I used to be as a caregiver or anything. And so it's like they're in like this like stasis, like they're waiting for a new chapter to begin, but like the, the chapter's the end of the book. So yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so um, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're a bioinformatician. So you're more of a numbers, machine learning, crunching type person, uh, uh, like software type person. Um, there's like people who built to develop like pharmaceuticals and that type of thing. And you would build like the infrastructure for developing ph pharmaceuticals, for instance, or develop testing that would help uh, better understand if pharmaceuticals working or uh, to like better measure populations and that type of thing. Is that a good way to describe kind of like how how you fit into the bar, like the space? Yeah, yeah. I think um, the testing aspect is is really key. Um, so as a bioinformatician, uh, how this kind of I think we're comparable to data analysts. But the key difference here is that we also have a um, significant bio biology background. And so a lot of the um, sequencing data and a lot of the data that really, uh, sorry, the biological big data that comes in, um, we have some technical uh, or we have the technical uh, tools or and skills to be able to code and have a statistic, uh, statistical mindset. But then when we're parsing through some of the, um, the data that comes out, the key is how do you discern, um, like, you know, maybe some, uh, we'll use the term biomarkers that maybe aren't really important versus biomarkers that are actually truly important based on the biological literature. And how do you uh, differentiate between maybe just artifacts of the data versus maybe something that is actually uh, being brought up by the signal, a biological signal? Mm -hmm. So like uh, in many ways, like the machine learning and all this other, like they're like tools to help you sift through right. the DNA, like to find the, the gold nuggets so that you can see like, all right, here's some good gold 
veins. At least like kind of a weird metaphor uh, yeah. to like do more work on. Exactly. And and if you think about machine learning or even just, you know, your uh, linear regression modeling and your simple, like even if you take it to a simple statistical uh, modeling, it's it's a model. It, it's going to pull out some features, right? Um, especially if you have a large enough data set. But then how, how do you know that those features are truly features, but then versus the um, just artifacts of the data? And so mm -hmm. I think that um, in order to create a very good model. And again, the AI um, with artificial intelligence, it's a, kind of a black box still. We're trying to figure out, you know, how does this model work? What is it really picking up? And uh, how do we recapitulate it uh, in terms of understanding the biology? So um, I think bioinformatics really works in multiple of those facets, and but then really trying not to forget the biology, which <laughs> as we kind of talked about, it's really hard to stay up to date. So you know, we try to have a good, um, uh, I guess, mediation between data-driven understanding, uh, data-driven understanding, and then also kind of, uh, you know, taking what we already know in the field and trying to apply there. Uh, um, so like machine learning is kind of like a Chinese box, if I remember in the philosophical com concept where it's like a mechanism that has inputs and it doesn't really know, like it's like it could be Chinese. And they don't read it, but they just have like the different letters and they sift through and then have the output. So it's not like a, I guess that's the difference between like AI where they're like trying to have like a thinking thing that has some cerebral uh, ability to understand like what they're generating and putting out where machine learning sounds like, like the Chinese box where like the person doesn't know the inputs and out. Like, like this is like a philosophical thing. I'm, I'm yeah. not describing this very well. Basically, there's like this a long time ago, a bunch of uh, weirdos sat in a circle and was like, hey, what, what are some ways to think <laughs> about the world? And they're like, you could have a person or an entity or in this case, like AI or uh, like a, a thing we build where it's basically like a, a box and an input comes in and has a bunch of squiggles. Yes. And they have like a like they have like a, a tablet that had, like, translates those squiggles and they translate them and put them out. And, and in this case, there's like an extra level of computation so that they can sift through the vast amount of it and have an, an output that makes it easier for um, you to do your work. But I was just, I was just thinking, like, oh, wow, that sounds like a Chinese box. But um, <laughs> are, are there in a given week, like what technology are you actually using? Like what is your, what is your um, tech stack? Like what are you actually like working with? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, so I do a lot, I'm more trained as a statistician. So for me, mm -hmm. I still do a lot of uh, uh, multivariate linear uh, regression modeling. And so this is your Y equals MX plus uh Y, uh, y equals M1, X1 plus M2, X2, and and just kind of a linear regression approach. The um, machine learning aspect really comes with a lot of my team. Um, uh, we do some deep learning. And, and so essentially how kind of going to that metaphor is we'll train. So the, the, the predictive algorithm that we try to, uh, that we've been kind of working on is uh, given an age, can we identify features or patterns that allow us to predict um, the, the biological age if you were given DNA methylation uh, data. So um, methylation, especially when you look at the data, it can go from zero to 100% methylation or zero to one in percentages or in decimal format, essentially. And um, which of those features are allowing us, so like, you know, these cytosine, the CPG sites that I was mentioning, and their methylation levels, which of those CPGs are really uh, associated to that biological age? And can we use that 
on um, just data that we don't even know uh, the age of that individual, but then predict that age. And so yeah. uh, deep learning really helps with, you know, making a model that's, you know, less, less error prone. So if we think about mean uh, uh, RMSE, so root mean square error, um, what produces the least amount of error and also the high, uh, highest number of, uh, or highest association to their actual age versus their predicted age. So and the closer the closer R gets to one, the more predictive it is. Exactly, and and we're yeah. looking more at uh, the R squared value. So as long as R squared is closer to one, it's it's it provides a good model. But then really, so that's one aspect. But um, the error rate is actually even um, something a little bit we've been kind of focusing on a little bit more, just as a way to say you know on a given time what is the error that we could expect from uh, one of these algorithms. And so deep learning provides, um, from what, uh, what we've done so far, uh, seems to provide uh, much less error than uh, a, a, a linear-based model, uh, which kind of it makes sense. So um, in your role, are, are you defining the data to look at, like defining like the control variables and all these other things? Or are you taking the data that like the machine learning and like the other members of the team have maybe brought to you like the, the data you have on different people and then mm -hmm. doing analysis of that like in the sense of like are you are you being are you a part of determining what da what data should be looked at so that you can have a better like uh, like a stronger uh, r1 like are you a, a part of that like i'm kind of curious like how how do you how do you fit into developing yeah. the system yeah, yeah yeah so um actually a lot of when I first started, it was kind of, um, so I, I, we had a bunch of um, uh, DNA methylation data. So the company that I work for, we have a commercial test where we actually are able to uh, quantify the DNA methylation of those individuals. And so through that, we've actually amassed a ton of data um, mm -hmm. through that. And so when I, when I started, um, really looking at the data itself and then being able to generate just a, you know, a, we call this an elastic net regression model, which is very similar to a linear uh, regression model, except um, you can use a uh, resampling uh, to uh, minimize the error of, of that linear regression. And what that allows us to do then is, um, or sorry, this um, technique has already been utilized in um, previously, but the, really cool thing is that by having all the data that we had, we had about, I think, upwards of 10,000, uh, sorry, at that time, it was upwards of 5,000 uh, individuals, um, all collected in the same uh, lab, which actually is great because then we, we know exactly what's being done in terms of the uh, collection. And then on top of that, I can always go back to my counterpart in the lab um, who you know, ask, hey, some of these samples came out to report very different uh, uh, methylation marks. Was there an issue with uh, sample preparation? And so quality quality checks are very important, and I take care of a lot of that as well. And so, uh, yeah, so really, I start with the raw data. I do a lot of the quality checks, uh, making sure that they're properly normalized to each other so that you actually can compare apples to apples rather than apples to oranges. And then if there are any cases of, let's say, batch effects, um, meaning, um, you know, a lot of these samples are collected throughout a, you know, a, a long time. And so on any given day, maybe the uh, temperature in the lab was a little high or the um, there was an, kind of a 
minuscule error in the machine that caused those readings to be a little bit different. Um, there are statistical methods to actually correct for those. And so I'll do a lot of that QAQC. And so just so that the output of those normalized batch corrected values are truly uh, essentially cleaned so that mm -hmm. the model doesn't pick up artifacts of that unclean data. That makes sense. Yeah. Sounds, sounds really fascinating too, especially because like, I have like that, uh, I have that type of mind where like, it's like a really, like really fun puzzle, you know, like, uh, everything's messed up and you're, you're straightening it all out. So yeah. the pipelines, you know, comes through and you have like this desired out output for yourself and the rest of the team. Um, it sounds like it'd be a lot of fun, especially with all the, the math and stuff you have to do. Is it, is it really complicated? I mean, you mentioned some of the, like the, the, the regression and other yeah. types of models you use, but like, what's the most, like in a, in a, in like a kind of a daily basis, like what's the most complicated, like this is like, we're getting far afield from longevity. This like, like no, I'll, no, no, I'll, trans fine, fine, I'll transition yeah. this path, but I'm just curious, like what's, what is the level of comp, uh, what's the, how, well, how complex is the math you use on a given day? Like, is it like Calc three? Is it, uh, you know, like, <laughs> like, how, like, where's the level? So luckily it's a lot more on the statistics side. I will mm. say, um, especially with a lot of programs nowadays, like, um, so like coding languages such as R, I use a lot of R coding languages. These packages are created by themselves. And so I think mm. or they're, they're already created by other uh, statisticians, like really hard okay. statisticians. I think the biggest thing is um, really choosing the right statistical method that fits the, the the data itself. And as nerdy as it sounds, it's really um, the the most underrated thing that you can do uh, is, is just uh, look at the distribution of your data. And then you, by looking at the distribution of that of the data that you have, does it fit a normal distribution? Does it fit yeah. a binomial distribution? And then there and then using that understanding, what is the proper statistical test that allows you to really gain um, a lot of insight because, you know, if you use a most, if you use an improper statistical test, you can ultimately be picking out things that actually don't really uh, relate to whatever feature or whatever biological process you're looking at. And so that's where um, I think that's actually the hardest part is uh, keeping up with the, st uh, just making that, you know, that uh, uh, decision of, okay, is this the right statistical test or not? And after time, um, since we work with the same data, it's almost like a rinse and repeat, but sometimes whenever we get new data, then we're, we have to really make that call of, okay, is this uh, fitting the, the assumptions that are being made for this, uh, um, uh, for this data type? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I was in college, there were, um, I was in like this, uh, I took a graduate level course and uh, the teacher was talking about how the professor, I don't know what the titles anymore, but um, <laughs> they, uh, I don't know, I'm not naming them. So, but uh, they, they, they said that the biggest, the weirdest thing they saw in like the neuroscience field is that everyone always assumed it was a normal distribution. Yeah. Like they just always assumed it was normal. And it's like, and I was like, oh, that's weird. Why would that matter? And he's like, like 30 minutes, like, this is why it matters. Like you can get false positives. You can have all these different oh, problems pop up. Um, I guess that gets to the point of like why this is really neat because um, I like, not to create like any association between these horrible people I'm about to mention and, and, and you and, and your group, but there are um, like the Elizabeth Holmes out there that'll create like false positives. And it's like, you don't even know if you're doing anything worthwhile. You don't. And that has this horrible effect on people when you're trying to develop a test for developing to understand anything where now these people are like, oh, now I have a better sense of who I am. Like, you know, all these different things. Um, so like this type of information, this type of like stats 
and you know like uh building like a solid foundation is how you have like something that actually is useful and something that like gets gets you 20 years in jail (laughs) 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 that's that's the difference well i guess the difference is also did you know you were doing it but so so you got to really you know but like um uh like that, that's just like a big thing that I always worry about, especially when you're talking about anything involving people. It's like when yeah. you have any predictive qualities or you're looking at something that involves, you know, how long you're going to be here, how, how good is that life? And you're trying to determine, you know, what's the person's age uh, essentially so they can potentially um, intervene and, and uh, even affect that or like see like with that test, I think like kind of well, I'm jumping the shark a little bit, but with your test um, that you guys have de- uh, developed at True Diagnostics. Um, we can then ascertain like what things can you do to intervene on your age to then affect it in a positive way and potentially a negative way as well. You know, like you can kind yeah. of do those things, but like all that starts with just a, a clean base uh, to know like, you know, what's positive, what's, you know, no false positives and all these types of like, uh, like type one or type two errors and all that type of stuff, um, which is really just, I'm kind of like jumping around a little bit in terms of like what I'm describing. There's like really important stuff. <laughs> like, oh, you're speaking like the my be- language. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like the, it's a bedrock of everything. And I, I do want to add a little bit more to that because yeah, I, I, that is something that actually keeps me up at night is, is, am I doing this as scientifically accurate as possible? And luckily um, within, within my organization, we truly believe in published research. And so um, for example, we licensed uh, this one uh, clock, the exclusively licensed, uh, which was published in um, eLife uh, called the Dunedin Pace. And the reason why we kind of go with this and also a lot of the internal research and development that we do, we want to go through the peer review process because that is one way to at least have some, uh, some you know, checks and balances to say that, are you doing this the proper way? And so, and trying to keep things proprietary, I don't think is actually very helpful for a lot of people. And so by publishing this research, we hope that it gives individuals a little bit more comfort that, Hey, we went through the rigorous peer review process and that we had other people kind of look at it and say, are you doing this the right way? And boy, peer review is, <laughs> can be sometimes difficult. So, um, there's a reason why we go through it. Mm-hmm. Is there, um, so far, has there been an outcome of these tests that has surprised you? Like as people have used it or as it's been implemented, uh, like we're definitely like jumping from stats to a- a- sure. application. I'm curious. Yeah. Um, is there something that's either surprised you or that you've been very like pleased at the stress you put on yourself to be accurate? Um, yeah. So for, uh, so one of the things that um, actually my team was, uh, so I personally wasn't uh, uh, involved with, but the, the Dunedin pace clock that I, I told you about um, or just briefly mentioned, there was a recent preprint that came out, which I, has already gone through the peer review process. I'll check one more time, but um, they used that clock um, on a uh, on a on a trial of caloric restriction, and we've already known that caloric restriction has some positive longevity benefits. But what was interesting to see is that that um, clock actually responded really well and showed a lower aging rate in that in in um, curbing uh, or in caloric restriction relative to just eating at, uh, as, as you will. And so this is one of those things that we're trying to move towards is developing these clocks so that they actually respond with uh, trials and interventions. And uh, that clock itself took about, um, they followed a cohort of individuals from 1973 all the way mm-hmm. to the age of 45. 
And so imagine how long that took to just be able to gather their necessary data and to be able to build that. But for all that time to be able to see that clock um, respond really well to caloric restriction um, relative to other epigenetic clocks, it, it, I mean, that I can't imagine how the individuals feel. <laughs> Actually, I do know because I've talked to them and, and they were really happy to see something like that because it really provides a useful tool that is responding uh, well to, you know, known, uh, known interventional trials. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like one of the biggest fears and there's so many different philosophies that exist like, uh, like the stoicism or whatever to help people be comfortable with the fact that we're all going to die one day. Like we all were born. And so far, everyone dies at some point. And so it's like, it, it, I imagine it gives some empowerment to know that you can have some intervention just so that, to know that you can have a positive impact on how long are you going to be here with your loved ones and how um, yeah. well you're going to be here at the same time. Um, I'm curious, as you were looking at those, uh, as you're looking at that clock from a, from a statistics standpoint, uh, um, what was the biggest jump, you know, in the sense of like, was it like 20s to 30s, 30s, 40s, whatever, where in terms of like the, like the aging that like, was there a bigger jump in, in time range for when there was a difference between like one age group and the next, if that makes sense? Like, yeah, or yeah, is it yeah. all somewhat uniform in the change over time? So, um, so I, I can speak about this, uh, using our personal cohort of, uh, of the true diagnostic users. Uh, so, you know, the individuals that take our blood, blood tests, we actually saw, that, uh, I kind of, uh, ran that clock on a lot of our, um, on our uh, cohort. And what we see is that there is a general increase um, that not really too much of a jump, but it's in interesting that at the age of 50, um, the, that clock essentially looks at the pace of aging. So it doesn't give you like a number of like, you know, 53 or whatever, but um, on a scale of 0 0.6 to 1.6 with one being like, you're not aging faster or lower, you're aging about the, the same it's standardized to one yeah. um what we see is that at age 50 the pace of aging um flip-flops when you consider sex of the uh the sex of the patient so pre-50 males age at a slower rate than females but once 50 hits and then um a little bit past it was interesting to see that the average aging or the aging pace for males is much is higher and increases that way. So it kind of, uh, <laughs> this is probably the worst place to do it, but um, kind of um, it flip-flops so that the uh, pace of aging uh, for males is much higher than uh, females. And mm -hmm. it continues like that um, uh, uh, until essentially the, the end of the, um, the age that we, we actually have looked at. That's interesting. So then um, when you, when you have these types of results, are the principal users of this data uh, other businesses or other like uh, research biopharmacal type uh, groups? Like it's more like a B two B, like what your diagnosis does, or is there like a like does the the benefit of the, the, these clocks being made does it impact people directly? Like if that makes sense, are are you guys? I, yeah. I already heard you. I already heard you say that there are people that will take your kit and they'll look at it. Um, but I'm curious in terms of like taking that data and having like something come from it um yeah. does there does there have to be like a business that applies that data or are is there like consumers that have found a way to apply the data themselves so so from the business uh standpoint i don't um i i do you know but from what i hear is yeah. that um we have a dtc uh uh 
market. So people can go to our website and um and get our test. It's uh it it's it's proved, and so uh, we'll ship them out um the the collection kit, and then they'll get a little bit of the the blood. Um, and it's all done at home. Uh, we're using we use uh, a tassel method, but there's also like a finger prick kind of method uh, to collect that, and then they ship it back. So there's a DTC um, market. We also um, work with a lot of uh, physicians who you know cash pay physicians who really work with uh, individuals that are very very um, into you know uh, seeing uh, you know they spend a lot of time on perfecting their, uh, their aging and their health and everything. And so they'll, um, uh, get a lot of those tests and incorporate that into, you know, the, 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 the monthly, if not, uh, every six month, uh, checkup. Um, and so that's another aspect, but we also, and this is where I really, um, uh, where I really spend a lot of my time is work with, uh, researchers to see, Hey, um, you know, we have, um, we're trying to understand if this specific uh, pharmacological intervention or some type of other intervention, maybe it's just behavioral. How does that affect aging? Because now we actually, it, it's essentially a quantifiable method of saying, are you really um, uh, decreasing your aging uh, aging rate or are you actually increasing it? You know, because before this, it's aging was very subjective um, apart from other lab tests that you could take. And so, um, so we we're able to gather um, in uh, patients uh, in the blood uh, in samples um, through all these different routes, and so that allows us to um, kind of tap into very different uh, individual uh, individuals and cohorts, if you will. Um, but I will say a lot of um, a lot of people that take our test. I mean, it's not an it's not a cheap test. They you know they really care about their health, and so technically there is kind of a healthy cohort bias. But you know. Mm throughout um through uh, what we hope is that by um you know uh, developing these tests and also having a more uh, a cheaper offering you know we can actually incorporate individuals that maybe you know are starting their uh health journey mm-hmm. makes sense all right um from a from like a number standpoint are the clocks modeled onto like the health like can we tell based on the clock like where people are in like a health stand a spanish point Mm. point of view as well or is it strictly like where they are from like an age i guess they're kind of related like you can't like have one without the other um but i'm curious um how are we able to like separate those two things so like if you were let's say i'm like 40 years old but then like through your clocks i've done everything right i'm at 30 years old does that does it suggest that like as i age i'll be doing like i'll 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 be healthier as i age i guess like are, are we able to see that type of follow through or like, have we done enough research to see that if that'll work out or is it kind of early stages in terms of seeing how the data, data has been proven, the, yeah. the, the test has been proven, but like how it'll play out in the field. So that's a great and fantastic question. Um, I will, so to directly answer that question, what we recommend um, is to take multiple tests. Uh, and, and this is not a business standpoint because Technically, if you take the test one time and you are, let's say, 10 years um, you know, younger, let's say uh, instead of being 40, you're reported as 30, that's fantastic. But one of the things that you really can't uh, tell, um, except there are some, uh, there are some uh, you know, uh, buts <laughs> to it, um, <laughs> uh, but what you can't tell is if you're headed towards a pro-aging or a, a, a quote-unquote anti-aging or uh, reverse aging. Uh, phenotype. So that's why if you take two tests, maybe at uh, zero uh, 
at the time or at one time and then maybe you know six months later and and you start to see that decrease consistent or there's a consistent decrease or just like you're staying the same that provides a little bit more of a credence of hey whatever you're doing right now is um either good because you're maintaining that uh 10-year reduction or if it's going even lower it's like okay it's actually really improving um Sometimes we don't see this much with a lot of actually healthy individuals because technically you might have maximized your uh, your uh, um, anti-aging potential, if you will. But individuals that are you know maybe not leading this uh, that healthy of a life, we start to see and and they start to really take that back. You start to see massive decreases within that six months. So uh, as much as you know taking one test is already a good start. I think you really get the power from taking two tests mm. uh, or multiple time points with that. With that said, um, there are different generations of clocks. So the earlier clocks were really trained on those, uh, on your chrono uh, chronological age, essentially. Um, we were able to identify CPG sites that really were uh, highly associative and correlated to the to um, the chronological age of that sample. But nowadays, what we're starting to do is we're not really focusing more on the chronological age itself, but we're training different types of covariates, such as your lab measures, on top of the DNA, uh, on top of um, let's say the time till death, um, where you can get that from like a Kaplan-Meier um, estimate. And using instead of using chronological age, but using that information to really develop these clocks. And I think some of the um, some of the most important clocks that I think I can think about are like the Grim Age, uh, the Pheno Age, um, and shout outs to uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Morgan Levine for Pheno Age, and then Aki Lu and uh, 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 Stephen Horvath. Uh, for Grim Age. There are a bunch of other uh, authors. I apologize for not listing all of them. And then uh, Dunedin Pace, really, uh, uh, Daniel Belsky, Avishalom Caspi, and Terry Moffitt, um, and a lot of the individuals at Duke. And so I, I think this has been really paving the way of, again, if you train it to chronological age, you're kind of running into that same issue of you're still basing it off of chronological age. But what we really want to go towards is that biological age. And so I think that now by integrating a lot of those clinical covariates and, you know, other types of omic data, not just uh, DNA methylation itself, you know, you can get a much uh, broader uh, representation of, of your, uh, your aging um, potential and aging system as well. That makes sense. I, I imagine uh, actuary scientists would be uh, beating your guys, like beating down your, your door in particular. Um, but, uh, I'd, I'd be very curious, even though like humans are much more complex than mice and other like, uh, primate models that we do a lot of our clinical studies on as we like yeah. transition through the, the clinical phases, I'd be curious to see as we learn more about what interventions work, like how much it would, um, we'd be able to intervene and decrease a person's, uh, uh age clock, uh, for lack of a better term and yeah. like what impact that'd be. Cause they're like such, uh, they have shorter lifespan. So it's easier to see, like it takes us a hundred years to see if we gain 10, um, I'm also uh, curious, and you kind of touched on this in terms of where I wanted to go with the question, which is with all the data you have coming in, and you and you're a you know kind of a data nerd, and <laughs> you have the you have the DNA methylation, and yeah. I said it right this time. Um, are there other biomarkers, other um, partnerships with you know other integrations that are going on, or other data sets that are existing that you guys already have at True Diagnostics? If you can't tell me, that's fine. 
But um, is there some stuff? Is there just some stuff you're really excited about in terms of experimenting with or uh, uh, gathering the data to find uh, that you've already found some other like correlative stuff um, that yeah. hasn't been talked about? Like, like is there like some nerdy, really deep math uh, statistic stuff going on that you've seen uh, that you haven't had a chance to talk about? Um, no, I, I think the biggest one that really comes to mind is um, so we are partnering with some bright individuals at uh, at Harvard. We already have partnered, sorry, <laughs> um, at uh, Harvard uh, University and um, specifically at the Brigham's uh, the Brigham's Women's Hospital. Um, and then on top of that, Sear uh, Inc. And so the reason why I bring these guys up is uh, is because what we wanted to do is kind of follow in that uh, follow and but uh, in the footsteps of creating a biological clock really taking it to the next level because nowadays a lot of the new sequencing platforms we we are not biased to only a certain number of uh, proteins that we know are associated with age we're not biased to only a certain number of metabolites i think the really the coolest part is now that there's unbiased targeting um of let's say um uh, proteomics, the SEER platform has been very crucial and very pivotal in in unbiasedly understanding the level of of a specific protein, and then using that as a way to identify maybe other proteins that we that are highly associated to biological age, without really limiting yourself to let let's say your CRPs or IL sixes that um, traditionally have been really tested. Not saying that they're not important, but what if there's more? Um, yeah. that we're not really touching on. And so that's what we've been doing. And uh, we've already collected, um, so using the uh, the biobank at uh, Mass General Brigham's, um, we've been able to sequence uh, not, or well, we, we've been able to, uh, let's say quantify the DNA methylation of 1500 individuals. And the same individuals had DNA methylation uh, characterized their proteomics using the SEER platform characterized, their metabolo uh, metabolomics characterized. And then on top of that, we have all of their like full uh, uh, physiological, you know, tests, like their actual lab tests and their relative, you know, uh, cell levels and things and things like that, spirometry uh, levels. And so by having all of those matched data sets, we can then uh, hopefully generate a model that takes every single one of those aspects together to give a more complete picture of, uh, of their aging, uh, of their aging process. That sounds like a lifetime of work with all that data and all that, you know, all those many different things you could be looking at. Um, how, yeah, it sounds like a lifetime of work and it's something that you'll be spending a long time on. Um, we have to we yeah. have to underline that there are a lot of uh, very bright individuals working on it, and I'm just really happy that True Diagnostic and and you know uh, our team uh, we're really uh, putting in a lot of energy into there. So, you know, we're part of the cog, but you know, we this is stuff that would needs to be done, and I think yeah. we're hoping is that you know it makes a huge impact in at least you know um, allowing people to really better understand their aging process. There was a, there's a, like a video where, I don't know, there's a website where you can start at like a human scale and you can go up to the point where like everything is the size of a human. So like then the sun's the size of a human, then the galaxy is the size of a human, like everything gets bigger and bigger, and bigger. But then you can also go down into a person where it starts yeah. like a human and then there's like the cell the size of a human and there's stuff inside the cell and it goes down, 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 down. And so like people, biology is so complicated that you really do need all these different partnerships just, just to like have any semblance of, of a hope and, um, 
and understanding. I think like we're 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 as complicated as some of our most complicated things that we've developed from machine learning or anything else going on. Yet we're we're so uh, uh, not understood as well. I think the most understood animal on the planet is probably the mice. Given all that we do to them, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's great We're to like, be a <laughs> Yeah, like, you know, like we we've cured, I think, every different type of cancer for mice. Like they're just they're just waiting their turn. It's like the have you ever seen Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? But those the two mice that are like actually in control of the entire thing, like they, they set it up this I way. Know, I know that scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but basically, the mice have set it up this way. We we work for them. It's not it's it's not the other way around. Um, <laughs> how, how do you see the I guess it's kind of the, the same. Are you do you see yourself progression into this field in the longevity space, or do you are you, or do you see with uh, all all they have access to, like if such, uh, I, I imagine such a buffet of yeah. opportunity in terms of like what you can learn, what you can try out and, and do. Uh, where do you see yourself going in the next couple of years? You know, I, <laughs> that's a that's a question that honestly I don't have the answer to. Um, I think that, but what I can say is this. Um, I think if you limit yourself, and, and it, it, this was actually said to me by a, um, a professor a while ago, um, I, I deeply respect. Um, if you limit yourself to one type of study, it really limits you to the breadth of biology. Because I think you really hit that point uh, really, really well. I, I can't do all this on my own, <laughs> nor do I have the capacity to. But what I do have are a particular set of skills. <laughs> uh, since we're talking about movie references, but but all jokes aside, um, it really is like you know how do you uh, collaborate with individuals, and it's through those collaborations I think that you learn a lot. And you know, as a scientist, you are always a student. You're you gain some sort of mastery with certain technical skills, but if you consider yourself a master. Um, personally, I, I think that's kind of the, the, you know, that's where you're really failing as a scientist. I think remaining a student and trying to learn as much as you can, and then uh, trying to, you know, associate yourself and also collaborate your, uh, with other individuals and also bring something to the table. I think that allows um, you to do really well. And so it's with that kind of frame of mind that if, you know, I, right now aging is really a question that I haven't answered for myself. I don't know you know, what, what is really causing aging? Well, how, how do you really slow down aging? Can you slow it down? Um, I mean, there are examples of how you can slow it down, but, uh, you know, how do you develop those tests? <laughs> this is the hardest question that, um, I, I'm, I, I'm trying to find the answer to. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. It's, it's a lifetime of questions. Yeah. I think also for, I think some like scientists are like, you're trained to be humble, but then like, if you don't say you're great at something, then people are like, "Oh, why? Why are we listening to this person?" Yeah, it's like, yeah, I, like I, don't, I think like a real scientist, in my opinion. Please don't burn my house down. But like, I, I imagine like a scientist has just proven how raw, like how much they don't know every day. And like, yeah. there's like a great Neil deGrasse Tyson quote where it's like, "The more you know, the more the 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 outline, the surface area of your ignorance expands." Right. And so, yeah. uh, like the the more cutting edge you are, the more you have to feel like just like, man, I don't know anything. Um, are there, are there, are, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, no, I, I, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, I think that it's, it's sometimes it's difficult to, to say, I don't know, but I think that's where the, you know, the beauty is, is that when you say, I don't know, the difference is that I, I want to know. And so you'll spend a little bit extra time, uh, trying to educate yourself on that. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, as I like, 
as you kind of pointed out, I came from axolotls into human aging and that jump was not a, an easy one. And so every day I'm still learning and, you know, trying to take this further, but, you know, there's some aspects of like, oh, the axolotl does this maybe like, is that the thing that we can bring to, to this table? And so that uh, diversity of thought can be very uh, useful. Yeah. I think sometimes people feel like they need to be, they need to know where the, like they need to have a map of where they're going. Um, but especially in science, science, you're, you're not really a, like, you don't, you don't have like cartographers where you're at. Like there's like some semblance that like, Hey, we might be in St. Louis and yeah. there might, I think there's a, I think there might be an ocean if we keep heading West. Um, but like a lot of it's unknown and yeah. you know, surrounding yourself with people that are also that way is like really exciting. You know, yeah. like, Having, like in any industry, like when you're in a team where like now everyone's like, no, I know what's going on. They start, there's like a, a organization called Toastmasters where it's like like a bunch of leaders or something like people who want to be leaders, like learn how to speak well yeah. or speak good if, if that's how I'd say it. But um, <laughs> like it's basically like who can speak up the loudest. <laughs> so <it's> like, <laughs> I went to their meeting. I went to a meeting and I just like walked out in five minutes. I was like, I will lead us out of here. <laughs> um, so like uh, it, it's like the, the humbleness is good, especially when you have a team of people that you know, it, like they can be like investor facing where it's like, oh, yeah, we're right. great at this. But like amongst each other, it's like, man, what is this? So I, I am curious, what are other elements of what you're working on right now that you're particularly curious about or in the longevity space that you're particularly curious about right now? Um, Yeah. So I, I think uh, like, for example, um, there's one study that we're working on, which has kind of opened up my eyes to know, maybe reevaluating some of these previous, you know, reevaluating re or evaluating some, uh, some of these interventions. Um, so the one, the one study that I'm working on is, uh, the effect of synolytics. And so how, how does, how, like does clearing out senescent cells, uh, provide a more anti-aging, um, uh, I guess phenotype, if you will. And so it's been reported that you know you see a lot of clearance of those uh, of those assimilatic cells, those uh, essentially cells that have uh, pretty much a re uh, those senescent cells that are uh, that are that are uh, being destroyed. And and so we wanted to see how these clocks kind of respond to that. And uh, while the study is still undergoing, we see a variation in those clocks where some of the clocks are reporting that, you know, that there is a decrease in aging where some of them say there's no response to uh, this one synolytic drug called desatinum quercetin. Um, after the application of desatinum quercetin, we see that the epigenetic clocks are not responding uniformly. And so, you know, developing a clock that, again, it kind of goes back to, you know, the research and development side. So developing a clock that's sensitive to that, that's, that's awesome. Um, if, if it was able to look at those mediations. Number two is um, exercise. We know that exercise it, it improves the, um, the overall aging experience um, by essentially decreasing the, uh, the aging uh, uh, I guess ailments, if you will. But, you know, is there a difference in different types of exercise? And so um, I think that's, that's an area that we're currently working on with uh, Auburn University. And, and that, I mean, I try to keep, stay healthy and I've been, you know, in, in, in a, uh, you know, I, I, I try to do as much exercise as I can. Um, and so, you know, having something, you know, how, how do the, what, what are these clocks telling us about that? It does exercise help. And uh, I mean, we, we're still waiting on some of those results back, but um, you know, we, we know that, you know, cardio is 
is is incredibly important uh, for you know maintaining a good cardiovascular system that translate to an overall systemic uh, anti-aging effect or yeah. or uh, re reduced uh, or I guess improved aging effect. <laughs> in, I think that the, the 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 nicest sometimes people feel like they're not healthy now, you know, like oh it's already too late. But the, I think one of the really interesting things that we've had with these bio, with these bio clocks, aging clocks. I'm just gonna keep inventing new ways to describe what you've already described. But sure, uh, <laughs> uh, the, uh, these aging clocks is like we we're you're showing that at multiple different times can you have an effect on yourself? And with um, there's lots of studies out there where it comes to like you could be 60 years old and you start getting fit, and it has a huge impact on your brain, has a huge impact on your heart. Like the human body is so adaptable. It's yes. it's weird. It's weird how adaptable we are, and yet how weak. You know, you punch someone the right way, and like you know, lights <laughs> out. But like you know, uh, we're we're it's weird. Organisms really just want to live. <laughs> but like, it makes sense. Like you say that. But like it. So like, if you're out there and you're thinking like, oh, you know, I'm not healthy, or I, I feel like I'm not healthy. I see all these things and just says I'm in a bad spot. Uh, uh, like, there's so much you can do, and that's what that's really cool about this research is yeah. sometimes it's like I if I put in all this work, well, I have the outcome, you know? And it's like, we're finding more research and more uh, tests that'll show that if you do this work, you will have that outcome. And I think that is really helpful for people who maybe never had that encouragement. And sometimes data is the best encouragement you can have. Cause it's like, <laughs> it, it's like, it's like uh, num numbers can be misleading, but to some extent they, they, they cannot lie. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, the proof isn't, pudding or proof is in the data really mm -hmm. and, and and that's the thing it's like you know i i i am trying i'm uh constantly improving myself to be a better geroscientist or an aging scientist and uh, by using data as a way to kind of learn a little bit more because uh you know if, by having this tool now we can objectively and quantifiably say if something is you know uh if if you know if a treatment or a behavioral change or a lifestyle is truly uh, allowing for a better aging um, uh, environment. And so just by doing it that, I, I've, I've always taken a data-driven approach in learning and uh, using that as a way to say, okay, now go back to the literature and what does that say? So, um, you know, some would argue it's not really the best way to learn, but I, I also don't think that there is a one, you know, one way to learn there's different methods of doing it yeah i think there's a, a like a probably a core framework for learning anything but i'm not smart enough to know it but if you look at it like everyone learns roughly the a similar way because the brain works roughly a similar way for everybody so whatever works for you yeah i mean you're doing yeah. i mean you're doing great work i mean that's kind of also like one of those things like am i learning the right way well i'm building things that have never been built before like i'm doing math <laughs> and stats that have never you know that are having this type of impact that kind of like shows you're doing you're in the right direction in terms of like you're learning. <laughs> like at this point in your life, if you were learning wrong, I feel like someone would have told someone you. Someone would have, yeah. Someone would have said so, yeah. Yeah, in your PhD I mean, program, you know, all these different yeah. things you're doing. But some people, you know, some people can say that, but, you know, uh, that you're learning a wrong way, but, you know, uh, sometimes you can prove them wrong. <laughs> yeah. It, so you're, 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 I think you're about two years into true diagnostics. Yes. How is that? How has that impacted your life? Do you like go around and just tell people about longevity all the time? Are you, as you're learning of these new outcomes for your work? Um, I'm just curious, like how does being immersed in this field affect your personal life? Oh my are you God. Able to, are you able to firewall it? I don't know. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a mix of, it's a mix of both almost because I, I truly am passionate about, about this uh, information, but I think one thing, you know, like of everything I learn and, you know, what I'm doing at work 
And I think it was kind of similar during my grad school because you are really investing a lot of your time, mental efforts, uh, um, and just, you know, life towards trying to solve something. But there's also something very important about uh, work-life balance that um, mm-hmm. I've recently kind of learning about, <laughs> kind of, you know, depending on who you ask, the hard way or like the easier way. And so I think more recently, like I, I do... I don't really typically work a nine to five. Um, I am working a lot more than just a nine to five, depending on, you know, when, uh, you know, curiosity strikes really. Um, but there is a important, uh, benefit of firewalling because if the, it's kind of like, um, producing music or art or writing, um, and especially in science, you have to write. That's the most effective way of communicating your ideas and also being, legit (laughs) um you got to take a step you know you got to take some time off uh reset because then when you go back you might actually be like oh this makes no sense at all or wait no this this is a good start and then that'll kind of uh fuel your creative aspect and so i appreciate people that can work all the time but you know if you keep doing that you can burn out and so i try to maintain a healthy i try to maintain a healthy firewall so that you know, at least I can come back and look at something with fresh eyes, uh, whether it be a, uh, like a, a coding script or, um, or a paper that we're working on um, so that it provides a different direction. So uh, to answer your question, um, I, I, I don't anymore. <laughs> uh, if people are interested, then I'll, you know, I'll have a spiel that I lay out, but, you know, I, I, I don't, uh, I don't typically, you know, go around saying, you know, oh yeah, I, you know, <laughs> I, I I do all this research at True Diagnostic and things like that. Um, but it, it is nice that my job it, uh, is, I mean, I still think my job is pretty awesome, even when it's stressful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, another element, just like kind of like uh, emphasize something you were saying there, um, there, you'll get more done with a good work-life balance. That's Like I used to work, like I used to not sleep for like two weeks and just work on a project. And that was just like, I'm a little myopic. So like an obsessive. So like that, that's me, but with a better work-life balance, I actually get more done with like, let, let's say like, I think there's like this myth where like the 40 hour work week was invented. I think the 40 hour work week was invented after like hundreds of people were shot when they were trying to like protest, you know, like uh, there was a time where there was a time in our country where like hundreds of thousands of people would protest for the right to have Sundays off or Saturdays off or to have a lunch meal, which is why like, I have friends who have like that um, structure at their work. They're like, oh, I'm not going to have my lunch break. It's like, so many people died for you to have this. Just take your lunch break. You'll work You'll work so much better when you come back. Um, yeah. And so like, like I, I know sometimes people always feel like they need to do more than nine to five or less than nine to five or whatever it is. But it's like, it's about the depth, you know, if yeah. you, I've, I've been at places where, you know, you've done a week's worth of work and like in an hour and, but you have to sit there and pretend like you're working for nine hours where if you just took a st- step back, maybe went for a walk something would pop in your head and you'd find something else to do and you'd go even deeper on something else. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a much better structure than this like manufacturing way of like, I need to put 40 hours with a weekend or whatever. It's like, have you moved the needle forward? You know, are you making these big contributions? I think it's more important. Um, and it's so, so I'm just saying like, it's really great that you have that work life balance up because you're going to do better work and you're going to, and given how important your work is like, that's, that's uh, good. That's a good thing. Um, so I encourage this to anyone listening as well. If you do not have a good work life balance, just try to do like 10 minutes better a day or like one minute, you know, like things compound. If you do 1% different every day, you're like three times different by the end of the year. 
that's just like simple math right there um <laughs> i mean i but, uh, it was it was something that you know you it takes time uh trying to figure out um i mean i had a terrible work-life balance uh during my first two three years of grad school um but you know you you, you live and you learn and uh you try you kind of figure out what works for you and don't don't get me wrong i mean there there's like saturdays and sundays uh where i'll just crank through like you know scripting just because i, I you know i'm just really focused and i want to crank through it but then um you know uh, there's saturdays and sundays that you know i don't want to uh mm-hmm. which is fine um as long as the work is being done yeah all right have you um because you're into music as well have you found a song that you pavlovianly triggered as you're transitioning off of work into in free time so that it's easier for you to leave and oh just like walk out without the bags? No, I have not actually. Oh my God. That actually, well, that would make a lot of sense though. Right. Cause if you have a song that just like ultimately just turns you off into uh, like going home. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there, yeah. even breathing can do it too. That there are people that train themselves to breathe like four, four or five breaths a minute or something like that. And by doing it, it like allows them to reset and be much calmer when they're having critical things going on. It's like imagine a scenario where like you like you broke something, everyone's like yelling at you, and you take like those you know the if you've trained yourself right, you can be like the calmest possible. Like doctors do it a lot as well, because yeah. um, like you know people die if they don't if they're not <laughs> calm. Um, right, yeah. Right, yeah, I don't know if you're into the office at all, but there's a there's a, a, a period of time where I think Michael has like it's closing time. I'm not getting demonetized. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm not monetized, but. Uh, and then like Stanley comes out and starts singing. It's like, it's my favorite song now. Cause I get to know, I know I get to leave. Uh, yeah. I don't, so it, at least in the fictional world, it definitely works. And uh, Pavlov would say it would work as well. So if there, if there were to be a song and understand like, you're going to be listening to this every day when you want to clock out. So maybe like, don't make it your favorite song or else you'll hate it. If there, if you could find a song to be that Pavlov, what, what would it be? Well, this is like totally not related. I'm just kind of curious. See, so I don't have one, but, um, out of the songs that I could probably think of, "Get Back" by Ludacris probably would be one, because <laughs> 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 I think the essence of the song kind of, uh, I think it captures how I feel when I want to go home. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like the Criterion have definitely got to be like it's it's like quirky enough where like after the hundredth time maybe you'll hate it, but then like fifty more times you'll be like, oh hey, there's that thing that I like about yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? <laughs> so. Hey, that's a, I've never, I've never actually considered that, but you know, I could see how that could work and maybe I'll start doing that. <laughs> yeah. Well, if it works, let me know. I'll, I'll share the data with other people. Yeah. Uh, are, have you, uh, I think the biggest thing that I found when I'm talking to scientists or whomever it is, is mm-hmm. the, in the work-life balance, it's the transition off. So I'm, I am curious, um, if it's not Pavlov, uh, what have you found other things that do work for you to transition off and like get your head space so you can have a personal life? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, and and I will admit that you know now in the you know COVID uh, era, um, it, sometimes it's not uh, entirely possible. But what is what has helped me is to differentiate between office versus home. Um, mm-hmm. During the COVID year, uh, well, I mean we're still kind of in we're still in COVID, but uh, when the height of COVID was occurring and you know everyone was socially socially distancing. That was really tough because, you know, I always, in, in a way, maybe the, the the Pavlovian association that you were talking about was really affecting me then. Uh, I I could not separate, you know, work from home because, I mean, I was working from home. Um, and so one thing that I do not take for granted anymore is, um, is working in the office, but then, uh, you know, uh, limiting my work at home. Um, mm-hmm. 
The only time that it gets a little blurred is during um, Saturdays and Sundays. And even though I do work, a, you know, some Saturdays and Sundays, I always treat it as like, you know, I'm doing a little extra rather than saying I have to do it that way. And so, and, and even then, like, you know, sometimes I'll come into work uh, on a Saturday or a Sunday just so I can have that differential, that different space. And so that mindset, and I think that it really comes into the play where I, once I sit at my desk at, uh, at home or sorry, at, uh, at work, um, I can, t- you know, there's something about it that I'm just like focused. I have my, you know, dual screen monitor and everything. Like I just get into the rhythm of things and I get more work done in let's say two to three hours than I do at like six hours at home. <laughs> I think there's a Japanese saying where it says a man is, a man changes based on what room he's in. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's I, what you're saying. Yeah. I, I would strongly agree with the Japanese, that Japanese saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's, I have a couple more questions. Is it cool if we go a couple minutes over? I've been trying to be yeah. on the, okay. Um, great. Thank you. Um, so the, I, I have a question, and this is one of those where I was like, I don't know if I can ask this one well, but I have found as I've learned other languages, whether it's coding or not, that in learning the language, like, like Spanish, for instance, like learning like the masculine, uh, hmm. like the L's and the laws and stuff like, and how that relates to the culture has impacted how, um, like if I'm speaking to someone who's like, from that descent, it's like kind of an interesting thing to have that subtlety. And so I'm curious, I was looking and it, and it says that, you know, a, a couple of different languages, like, you know, uh, te- Telugu, Telugu. Uh, yeah. So, um, te- yeah, Telugu uh, is my mother tongue and I speak it. Um, so I used to speak it very uh, fluently when I was younger. Now it's a little bit more broken just because of, you know, uh, not being able to practice it as much, but I do speak, uh, you know, whenever I'm back in my grandparents' hometown. Okay. Okay, great. So then I am curious, do the cultures that inherit that, that, that like every language is a culture, like, you know, like, uh, it's like the bedrock, like it's one of the cornerstones. Um, does that, are you able, is there, are there elements in those languages that pull into your work or the, or your, or your critical or the way you address problems that you've noted? It's like, like I said, it's like a very weird esoteric question, but Mm. every now and again, I wonder this, like, how does, how does language influence the way we address problems? Um, so I was just wondering in those languages, is there anything in there that, yeah, influences you? So that's, so I guess to answer it, not, not really, especially with Mm. uh, Olegu. And the reason why I say not really is because when I think of, you know, sentence structure, I think of it from English. And then I have to, and when I speak Telugu, I have to translate it from English to Telugu. Uh, so in that respect, the reason why I bring that up is uh, a lot of like um, my work is, I guess, you know, the first language that I think about in my in my head is is English. And so that really translates over to being able to read a lot of the uh, a lot of that. Um, the, the scientific article articles really doesn't affect that much. Um, however, in let's say in computer coding. They say that if the hardest language to learn in computer coding is the first language. And, and this is interesting because like, like when I first learned Python, so Python was my first introductory computer language. There were a lot of cognates that really transferred over from uh, Python to R. And now Telugu being a Dravidian language versus English being more, I guess, an Anglo-Saxon romance language. Is it a romance language? I think it's a romance language. Yeah, uh, a romance language. 
there are a lot more cognates between uh, uh, English and Spanish. And so like this, I think this is kind of translates over to how like, you know, individuals can really learn uh, Spanish a little bit quicker uh, once they know English versus let's say a Telugu speaking individual uh, learning Spanish. And so I think in that respect, um, you know, I think it's given me this, you know, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I think that uh, ability to, you know, to, to learn one language, um, which was really difficult, but then that translates over to learning multiple different types of computer languages and then allowing for a breadth of knowledge and different aspects. Maybe that's something that, you know, I mean, taking Spanish during my high school, like that has helped with, uh, with that. And then also kind of trying to identify cognates in Telugu from English, which actually there are, I think there are a few. Uh, I mean, and also like Telugu, they just, uh, they do borrow a lot of English uh, into some of the vernacular. So I don't know if that answers the question, but uh, I, I guess I that's- I think you did. It, so it sounds like it, what I'm hearing is that um, there's a process for translating, whether it's a spoken language or it's a coding language. And that process is somewhat uniform in terms of like how you translate it forward and back into the language, into the language, that, into the language that you use. Yeah versus into the language that you're uh, applying in a coding or, or when, when you're with your grandparents. And because, um, ult and ultimately it's all based on logic um, and yeah. in language it's, it's grammar. Right. And then in, uh, in, uh, in computer language, it's uh, computer coding. It's all essentially pseudocode and logic there too. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for, for taking a stab at that one. I, I wrote it down cause I saw you had new, uh, multiple languages and it's like one of those that I, I always try to, I feel like there is a benefit in having multiple languages, which is why I'm always yeah. somewhat sad that we're getting to the point where we have like the tele tele thing, like the babble fish yeah. in our ear that tells us everything. It's like you miss out on such a, a pillar of a a, a a group of people's uh, uh, culture, you know, and, and like then it's kind of like a like a piece of us, like all of humanity dies. But so I, it's something I'm curious about. Um, so then before we uh, transition to my rapid fire, last few questions I ask, I am curious with. With all that you know about your subject, all that you, you know, you give all these uh, great talks, which I enjoyed. Um, is there, is there anything that we did not capture? Is there anything that we left out that you, you really feel we should spend a little bit of time talking about? Like, cause I, I hate to miss it. I <laughs> know. Um, I think, uh, I, I think you, you allowed me to speak on a lot of the things I was passionate about. And, and this is the, one of the things is that there's so many things that are out there that, you know, um, maybe I'm forgetting too. Uh, but, I think maybe really to restate that um, I guess when we, when we start to think about um, the future of medicine, uh, the epigenetic testing realm has been uh, with DNA methylation and all that has been really an exciting field. And what we hope is that by creating a lot of these tools that it really democratizes that ability to really know more about your, uh, about your personal, uh, personal health, seeing where you are and all that. And so I think that what is, I mean, maybe to just re, uh, restate, like, you know, not only the work that we're doing at True Diagnostic, but, you know, a lot of researchers and geroscientists and all that, you know, creating these tools and then using these tools to see, you know, what really works for you in terms of the aging process. I think that that is, I think that's going to be the most exciting part. And I think now with a lot of the tools being built and being, you know, uh, being validated, I the, I'm I'm excited for the next however many years of 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 geroscience uh, uh, and aging uh, research. Awesome. Um, so, uh, then like a kind of a bonus one on that one. 
for anyone who's about to leave college, do you have any tips for them to to find a place like like to be involved in in the way that you are? Oh, Anything man. that yeah. Uh I think be open-minded to different opportunities. Um and then also if you're not good at something, don't let that be a de- detriment because you could always learn and teach and and become better at that thing. Um and so I mean, I credit a lot of uh a lot of my, you know, it, I don't, I don't know if it's success, but like a lot of the positive, you know, the trajectories to, um, to a lot of great mentors and people and people who were willing to, to be there to mentor me. And so if, you know, if you have the opportunity to work at like some really great, uh, like really like, you know, uh, top of the line company, versus a company where the individual is really the, the 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 managing partners are willing to mentor you go for the mentorship and i think that that is something that um uh, i don't know not much you know you, you can't really put a price on good mentorship it's the uh, mentor mentors are like the cartographers if we're yes. using the Lewis and clark met- metaphor um they'll make sure you don't go down a quagmire um, right. <laughs> hopefully so, <not. laughs> yeah all right so then my rapid fire question so thank you again for letting us go a little longer sure. yeah um, what is a problem you have that you'd love people's help with? If people are listening, you, you can you can say anything. What um, personal, professional? What's a problem you're having that you love help with? Uh, getting better at machine learning. <laughs> okay. Or or really applying the next level of machine learning. What element of machine learning do you want help with? Uh, for example, uh, so we we right now we have uh, some deep learning elements that uh, that have been able to work, but like, how do we take launch, uh, longitudinal information and apply that as a as a as a feature to really improve uh, on predicting the future state of of that uh, of let's say DNA methylation. So essentially mm-hmm. predicting where your pace of aging could be in uh, in let's say a year or so. And I think that there are methodologies there that that can allow for that. Okay, sweet. Well, hopefully someone listening can help. And if not, I know some people want me to email after this. But anyways, yeah. um, what is a question you have? And if it if that's the question, that's cool. But um, What's the question you have that is unanswered? So like the one I always gave to give you space to think about it. Um, the one I always gave is like, if the, if you took away the big bang, like what would be here? And so like, it's mm-hmm. kind of like the best way to think about it. The answer that I got was basically like, you're, you're describing like a, a where and a when, where you took away the where and when. So it's like, you're, I'm like defeating the perfect, like, like where and when was defined in the big bang. So there would, there would be no when or where without it <laughs> i i swear ever since you asked me this question i'm i'm i've been it's been ruminating in the back of my head but yeah what would happen if you uh if, if you ended age uh, if you ended uh aging what what mm-hmm. would this do to society and uh what would it allow what, what would it do to you know the the consumption of resources how to you know overpopulation um the uh overconsumption of of uh things that we need to to live as humans i think that's a maybe a societal and an int- a question that you know i don't know the answer to and that would be whether we even solve it or not um i think sustainability is one of those things that i i think about it a lot i, I think it comes probably like my my like stab at the answer uh would probably like it'd be a culture shift like the like weirdly enough it's not the fact that we're smart it's not the fact that we speak. It's not the fact that we're fast or we can build things. It's like the invention of culture is what allowed us to go from like a bunch of people being eaten by lions to just 
wiping out every apex predator predator on the on the planet and being the dominant species and that was like like us as a species have been around for like i think like quarter quarter of a million years or something like that but it wasn't it was only up until like the last 50 to 100,000 years where we were the dominant species so like the last you know 150 like the majority of the time that we've been around we were like nothing but it was the invention of i was reading a great book on this um i can't see it or else i'd say it but basically they were talking about how like culture was invented and like everything exploded. They call it the cultural explosion. So I'm, I'm thinking similarly, there would have to be a giant cultural sh- uh, shift. Um, yeah. That'd it, be it, like my stab. It, no, it's, it's, it's a personal, it really is a personal, like, you know, question that I have um, because yeah, like, cause you know, I, 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 we, I work for a company that really wants to improve the human condition. And I, I truly do want to allow for individuals to be, you know, to, figure out ways to improve themselves and give that tool to them. But, you know, it, I think, yeah, trying to figure out, you know, to, to what extent should we do that? Or is it more, um, you know, creating a, a life, a lifestyle that just is better, but maybe not extending human lifestyle, uh, lifespan. I'm, I'm not sure. And so that's, yeah. that's why that question, I don't know. Maybe it'll be remained unanswered to me. Uh, yeah. Do you think you'll have the opportunity to explore that question in your lifetime? Or do you think, like uh, this will be like maybe two generations away before they can really explore that concept. I mean, I think I think what'll really answer that is you know once we start to see individuals living longer, how does that you yeah. know affect right? So it might be two generations after, and I'm not either for or against it. I just uh, yeah, it, it, I don't know. It's a curiosity. Yeah, it's a question about yeah, like what would happen. Yeah. Yeah. All right, and then uh, last question is so for people who want to learn more about your field, are there books? or resources in particular that you'd recommend they check out? I think Google Scholar keywords definitely got that. But is there anything, are there any capstone resources that you'd recommend pe- people check out? I think uh, uh, capstone resources. The, there are, um, pr- like, for example, for me, I follow a lot of um, uh, professors and aging researchers um, online. So the likes of uh, Dr. Morgan Levine, Dr. Stephen Horvath, uh, Dr. Ricardo Marioni, Doctor, uh, even uh, Alex, uh, I can't pronounce the last name, but um, uh, there are a lot of individuals that I follow, and many of them have written books. And so I would highly recommend just at least going through their primary literature, but maybe just following them on Twitter and just seeing what you know what they have to say about the field. Um, uh, from and then people from the institutes like the Van Andel Institute, Buck Institute. Um, um, places like that. Uh, Peter Verdeen uh, Verdeen is another individual that I can, uh, that I'm thinking of, of uh, uh, Gladyshev, uh, Vladimir Gladyshev, I believe that's his first name. Um, so yeah, so I think uh, any of those people on Twitter first, and then try to see what books they have. Um, I think that really helps. I think the really cool thing about doing what you recommended is that once you're in the algorithm, the algorithm will help you go deeper. Exactly. You know, it's like yeah. <laughs> you, 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 t- you like Google pizza, sh- you know, shops and you're seeing pizza recommendations for a week. You know, so you start Googling this type of stuff and you'll start getting on the right algorithm for what you want to learn, um, which is <laughs> kind I, of a, you know, positive negative. Um, so then <laughs> uh, if, so given the, the fact you're a musician, um, is there, is there any music, I guess, like as a fun uh, send off, is there any music you'd recommend that we check out? Or like, is there a band, an album, uh, a playlist that you'd recommend that we all listen to as we as we go about our day? And I'll, I'll link in the show notes so it's really easy for people to check them out. Yeah, um, I don't know how many people would like it, but um, so. <laughs> they'll experience it. <laughs> yeah, <regardless>. Exactly. 
<laughs> you can experience um so there is a band that recently like, i mean i've been listening to them for the last uh about two years really getting into them uh bring me the horizon uh mm-hmm. of, where they're from england it's they used to be really screamo heavy metal kind of but they've integrated a lot of like um electronic edm like uh break um, breakdowns and all that and i don't know it's just it's a it's a trip whenever i listen to them because it's just blending all these different types of uh um uh, genres of music which i mean it's a it's a they have truly a collaborative spirit which i really appreciate as a scientist and so um and and when i hear it as a you know as a music lover like it's oh man it's great you get like I don't know. It it it's it, I I would definitely at least check them out once. <laughs> Is there a particular song? Oh, um let's see. Teardrops. I think that's the one that comes to mind. Actually, I was listening to that this morning. So <laughs> I I listen to a lot of like uh heavy metal when I'm coding. It really helps. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you want to get your uh, your your uh your heart pumping. Yeah. <laughs> Like, uh, it's like, it's basically like, uh, if you could, if you could work and walk, it's like the same effect. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that was Dr. Ron, where we talked about everything we, we mentioned in the beginning, methylation, biomarkers, genomics of axolotls, biogene clocks, why they're important, the future of the space resources. I hope you guys enjoyed this. This is a really fun episode for me. We, uh, talked a bit before and after, and he's really, a, a fascinating person. Uh, most uh, just check the links in the show notes if you want to see something in particular. I hope you'll you know share, subscribe, you know tell everyone about this because you know the, the more people who, who listen, um, well, the nicer it is. It's got a little bit of a validation. And so thank you everybody. Remember to check us out at learnwithwold.coms, and I hope you all have a curious and fantastic week. <laughs>